Hello, I'm Jensen Beeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiasts Podcast. Two Enthusiasts Podcast, helping you earn your PhD in Brapology. <laughs> That's good. I like that one. Final exam was on Friday. <laughs> Study up, boneheads. <laughs> Let's talk about the Isle of Man TT. Okay, let's do. Let's Cause, delve cause into that's it. Because that's finally done and dusted. You can finally get some sleep at night now and be on a normal time schedule. Saw some amazing racing. I don't know how much of the racing you caught. I the the one that I that stood out and I, I don't it seems like it feels like we t- we talked about this already was the super stock race where gosh we're gonna have to revisit. I swear we talked about it, but we talked I ta- about practice. Work. I've talked about it to so many people because the super stock race itself was so well done. Um, and the race itself was interesting where Ian Hutchinson goes out and starts laying it down and Dunlop didn't have an answer for him. Right. I mean, really didn't have an answer to the point where he, when he pulled off at some point and he was kind of like looking at the bike or, you know, gesticulating towards the bike, like something was wrong, but I don't think anything was wrong. I think he was just getting his ass whooped by Hutchinson. And then that was the same race where the dude crashed into the wallish area and then pulled a like a gigantic yeah. um, a banner onto the track and the other guy is right behind him and you get the onboard footage of that banner with the dude underneath it coming onto the and it barely misses it it's just a really really gnarly thing and there was a couple other situations where there was a bunch of riders grouped up uh, which always makes for an interesting nail biting um, uh, TV watch because out of all the out of all the races on a fortnight, when you got these, when the, these these huckabuck races where they're actually racing against each other, even though they're not, because they're ten minutes apart, but some of the guys are using ten seconds. To, sorry, sorry, ten seconds apart. But some of the guys are using the faster guys to get better laps. Right. right. And then you're looking at a course over what four laps on on a super stock race instead of six in the in the senior TT. So four yeah, laps. Super bike and senior are six races or six laps. Sorry. Right. So that in this case is super stock, which I would assume is four. I didn't, I can't remember, right? But it's interesting, the dynamic and then the pit stops. For me, I love endurance racing and this being all, you know, I don't know how far they go on four laps. What, 37 miles? You do the math. Almost 38, so yeah. Yeah. 76 miles-ish. But that's two laps. That's two laps, sorry, yeah. Right, so. It's 152. Yeah, so lots of miles. I mean, if you think about the Daytona 200 and how gnarly that is, and they're only pit stopping once a lap or twice, over the course of the four laps, I don't one one pit stop, one pit stop. So yeah, one take of gas is pretty much two laps. Pretty cool, man. On, on pretty really, much all the bikes, it's I really fun to watch. And if you ever have a chance, and it was on Velocity, which I get, so I was very excited, and the coverage was excellent. So, so that that TV production is done by a company called North One, who traditionally does it for then ITV4 in the UK runs it, and they've opened that up now. So Velocity is using the same feed, but they're using they're using the same feed basically for North One, and, and that's in a lot of different country, countries are using that as well for the TV package. So it's a really well done. North One does a, a bang up job doing summaries after each race uh, or each each day, I should say, and putting out good content. Like you like you mentioned, the the crash was James Cowton. He hit the uh, the barrier and grabbed the banner, and then just Horse Sager had the onboard video was coming up behind him, was trailing him pretty close, and I called it the luckiest crash you'll ever see at the TT. Sure. The, the video is on asphalt and rubber, it but I mean he been. misses him by inches. He actually, I think, a horse's bike uh, actually grabs the the banner a little bit, and you see it kind of spin James a little, and he walked away from that. I mean, that's that's a lucky crash for both sure. those guys for to both. walk away from. Yeah, could have been ugly. But it, factor 10 for sure. For sure. I mean, that any other day, that's a 
two more fatalities on a on our fortnight that already saw four fatalities from from competitors which is unfortunate to bring up your point from the 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 pit stops the pit stops are always super interesting because they use the gravity can they're not these yeah. super whammy sure um they literally just use like a a towel over like this nozzle the nozzle just has like a little trigger and they put like a towel over it to kind of like make it sure it like doesn't spill. yeah it doesn't spill a lot sure and like that's that's usually the limiting factor on the the pit stop a good pit stop is the length of time it takes to fill up the tank and in a lot of endurance racing i mean from the 80s on from late 70s on there would be these elaborate schemes of of where you had one tank one opening on a fuel tank where the fuel would go in and yeah. then other opening where the air would escape out. Right. It's like a, it's like a, sh like a double barrel shotgun almost yep. in a way. And so that, if you think about the way a fluid is being displaced, when you're filling something up, you're limited by how much air is escaping. Right. Well, it's the same principle, like on any fuel can, like a uh, sure. hand can. You have can. to open up the little, little thing at the back. Yeah. Right. You have to open that little thing. If you if you're pouring and like, why is this going so slow? And every once in a while, I'll get a glug. And they're like, oh, and then you have to twist the little air. All of a sudden, glug, 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 glug. Same thing. Right. So, it it I, for some reason they don't allow it. I don't know what the deal is. It's, yeah. It's their. I think the TT is interesting in the sense that like there's kind of these certain little things they do. They're very antiquated. Like they still have. The Boy Scout runners who give times to a guy who paints the sector times on a big huh. big chalkboard in front of the that. grandstand. Huh. Even though there's like there's an electronic there's an electronic well. backup, but they still do that. Yeah, okay. they still do that. The Boy Scouts are always on the podium ceremony. They still ride on public roads still around on public an roads, island yeah. in the Irish Sea. Yeah. That as an example, right? Exactly. And the the fuel tank thing is is part of it. And I think. In a way, they look at it as a way of of leveling the playing field. Yeah, because it does. I mean, those those cans take a while, uh, and it, and it gives the riders time to breathe, clean their face shield, which is probably a safety thing more than anything. So they switch their face shields. Yeah, and I think that, frankly, from from a my standpoint, I look at that as a safety thing. If they weren't given that opportunity, they'd have some squeegee, and the guy would go back out there or girl and be in a situation where they might not have a clean shield because they were in a big hurry and then plow themselves in the Craig Nabah, whatever it is, right? Sure. You got, I think there's parts of that where like give a good look around the bike. That's a, it's a already horribly dangerous situation. So we might as well make sure that the machine's right. So when they do pull it in and they do a wheel change, that extra bit of let's make sure it's right, you know, make sure the brakes are pumped, make sure. And I, that, that goes to it. Cause when the, the stops that I'm used to have done, have done, you could get to 10 seconds. Yeah. Eight seconds was like seven and eight seconds with Suzuka eight hour bikes. That's unreal. But imagine that 1001, 1002, 1003, 1004, 1005, 1006, done. That's two wheels, a full tank of like, I don't know, 24 liters of gas. That's a lot of gas. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the tires are done and the brakes are pumped and everything's good and the guy's gone. Right. So that's a really, that's gnarly and, and it's expensive to do that. That's the thing. That's the really thing. expensive to do that. And I think that's, I don't know if that's like the main reason. I think there's just a lot of reasons that are involved. That's definitely one of them where it's like, let's make it because some of these races are decided by those kind of units sure. of, of, of pit stop time where it is three seconds, four or five, you know, however long, but under 10 seconds has definitely been the deciding factor between first, second, third. And I think there is a part of it where they say like, 
Yeah, if you're willing to spend the hundred thousand dollars to get the super whammy quick change system, yeah, you can start winning races, and then that creates an arms race amongst the top teams, and that's not the spirit of the competition. That shouldn't be, you shouldn't be winning a race in the pits. I can certainly understand you losing a race in the pits because that's just bad teamwork. Yeah, but you shouldn't be sitting there doing seven second pit stops when everyone else is doing thirty second pit stops. That's a very great way to put it because in and say the Daytona two hundred, you are winning in the pits in the Formula One. They are down to where oh, the pit insane. lane delta. It's insane. I mean, when you watch them go, they, but the pit lane delta is what you watch every time. That that is from when the car enters the pit to the when the car exits, and they've got it down. And watching them do two and a half seconds, four tires, it's amazing to see it. But that's really what it is. It's you see how. Oh my gosh, I would love to know how expensive the wheel nut and wheel every part of the component of a formula one car can't imagine the cost of that stuff right? would you say you really want to know about it really wheelie 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 wheelie, wheelie. want to know until i'm tired oh you just had to trump me on that one didn't you <laughs> i thought i was like oh i'm gonna get a quitting button you in the show said, you should have oh. said oh lug nuts lug nuts <laughs> all right so yeah bottom line it's very cool to, to see that part of it for me, I like that because it's the mechanical side of it. And to see bikes that are built to go a distance, not just a sprint race. So a sprint race generally, I don't know, AMA sprint races were 50 kilometers about, right? Or no. Yeah, well, you think... Maybe 50 so think, miles, think one about, of the two. Think not about MotoGP. I mean, the tracks kind of vary, but 24 to 30 laps, roughly three miles a piece. That's 75 miles. I mean, yeah, almost half the distance of a four lap all at super once. stock race or super sport race sure a third of the distance of the super bike race that's of note yeah and that's a cool thing to see you know then and what, seeing the differences in the bikes the uh the isle man bikes have a very unique for, for high speed a lot of high speed stuff. a lot of high speed so like it's always for me it was really interesting when i was there in person um a few years ago i've gone twice and the last time well i should say the first time i, I went the one of the things that struck me was how tall the windscreens are yeah. and a lot of the guys will have like what we would consider like a double bubble height yep. windscreen and then they'll make like their own little plexiglass like topper on top of it to make it even taller that's what looked like on on dunlops it looked no. like he had a screen on top a, of a, a screen. screen for a screen no yeah. and that that probably was the case i don't i'd have to look back at the photos and, and see if we're looking and at the same thing that, but it wouldn't surprise me because i definitely see you guys do that that was one of the coolest things was seeing a lot of the stuff on dunlops like you'd see a picture of him working on his bike and a lot of i would say it's workmanlike instead of factory-like solutions on his bikes uh the bmws that well, he was he, riding he runs very much his own effort like his so his bmw motors came from uh bmw motorrad they came from berlin hmm. him and ian hutchinson they had factory engine support Interesting. And there is there's some kerpluffle there because there was maybe they didn't get the same engine or one engine was more reliable than the other because there there was a little bit of a, a kerpluffle there but that's beside the point but yeah he's very much in a hands-on kind of racer and, and i like that i saw that and if you the, any anytime i see a, a rider who's a mechanic because i'm a rider who's a mechanic i i appreciate it because they understand the the, the mechanics behind the a bike and they do their own stuff. I, I think that's cool. It's interesting. It's interesting to watch. A lot of the TT guys uh, bleed their own brakes. A lot of the racers bleed their own brakes. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Uh, yeah, I mean, you laugh, but oh, like it, it is a little bit of the... I bet. I'm not... Dude. I talked to I talked to John Burroughs about it. Uh, John Burroughs was one of the top privateers from the TT for a while. 
Um, and now he runs Burroughs Racing. And he has a couple guys um, that do quite well on on his team. But I asked him about it, and it wasn't so much of, like, a, a thing for him. I mean, there's definitely an element of, like, he bleeds his brakes, therefore he knows those brakes are good to go come race day. Pack your own shoot. Pack your own shoot. But it's also, that's, I mean, part of it is for his own mental comfort. Yeah. But part of it is also for the mechanic's mental comfort, where it's the idea of, you know, you don't have to worry about this thing that could kill me. Like, if you fuck it up, like, you're not going to fuck up something that's, the most important thing that I need on this motorbike to work. Huh. You know, like the engine can blow and that that's an engine that blows. The tire goes out, the tire goes out. But if there's one thing these guys need to have to be safe, it's the brakes. Because if everything goes sideways, they need to be able to get that bike to slow down. Yeah. And it's one of those things like it takes that off the mind of the mechanics hmm. as well as giving the rider peace of mind that, hey, I did this myself. I know it's right. I've never heard of it's anything a two-way like street. that. That's so weird to think about. They're a weird group, man. And that's that's been like the the hardest thing I think for people to wrap their minds about is like TT racers and road racers in general are a special breed because a lot of these guys have day jobs. A lot of these guys aren't professional racers. You know, they're not out there really for the fame because there's not a lot of fame to be had from it, but it is very much of like uh, testing their metal, climbing the mountain. You say there's not a lot of fame to be had from it, but Guy Martin has made a career out of doing what he does even though he still works on trucks but that's part of well he doesn't i don't know how much working on trucks he's doing anymore these days he's got his little tv shows guy martin is i think the exception that proves the rule in a way like uh, we talked about this a little bit on the paddock pass podcast which just did our tt wrap-up because steven and tony were there the, the, the point i made then was you know how many of these guys can walk around london you know Lon- not the u.s london yeah sure you know the, ma- the closest major metropolitan wow global metropolitans put it that way guy martin would probably get stopped in the street hey guy can i have your autograph john mcginnis would probably get stopped in the street hey john can i have your autograph i don't think michael dunlop and ian hutchinson get stopped too often and those are the guys that won all the races this year and then you look farther back in the grid like yeah connor cummins around the isle of man he's he's manx so he's obviously the local boy yeah sure, sure he gets stopped when he goes takes the ferry across the the way i don't think he's getting stopped too often he's a very tall yeah. unique looking guy so you know maybe people kind of recognize him but it's not like Valentino Rossi and Jorge Lorenzo where they are just, you know, these, you know, superstars when they walk around their home countries. I think any of these guys can walk around Ireland and maybe one person comes up to them, but it's not, it's sure. not that level. And then sure. the farther back you go down the grid, the the more and more and more. Oh, yeah. Like even I sometimes have harder times like Gary Johnson, Lee Johnston, different people. Okay. Which one's the Johnson? Which one's the Johnson? I got to keep these guys straight. Like it's, it's, it's yeah. tough because they're not superstars. They're just. They all have day jobs. That's the thing. How many of them are, are professional racers in the sense that's all they do to earn their income? All right. So that that was good. The one thing that was seemed to be a little bit bad was that there was a kerfuffle between Dunlop and yeah. Hutchinson. What was it? I didn't quite get the how this went down. Yeah, it, it kind of took a while to track it all out because the, the ACU, the ACU is the the, the governing body, body, the sanctioning body of the race, t, uh, the TT. Um, had to release a couple of press releases after the uh, senior TT press conference. So basically, the senior TT press conference. Um, the senior TT is the first major mm, race of the week. No, right? no, it's the last one. The C- so the, the 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 race weekend starts off with the Superbike TT. Ah, okay, I'm sorry. And it finishes with the senior TT. Okay, so the senior TT finishes. And and there's not a lot of difference between the two. And I don't know why. The name senior TT is a little bit of a, of a misnomer. It's not like it's for like the older riders or anything like that. It's just, it's, it's the one, the blue ribbon race is what they call it. It's the one everyone wants to win. That's the one that all the manufacturers, all the teams want to get. Um, but it's basically super bike equipment. And there's some subtleties in the rules where 
the superbike class has to be uh, production bikes and there's leeway in the senior TT for them not to be. But at the end of the day, pretty much now one's running the other. Like, cause it used to be like the Norton bike, yeah, which basically is an RSV4 engine with a Spondune frame. Spondune is owned by the same company that owns Norton. That originally had to be a senior TT bike. It had the yellow number plate with black numbers. And now they were running it in both, even though it's still not production yet. So there's the TT is still kind of one of those events where rules can be bent. Like like Pike Speak when they're like, Oh, well, you can't you can't have fairings. Uh, but that multi strata bike is that's that Ducati. Fine. That's fine. Oh, are, are you our title sponsor for this? Yeah, okay, cool. yeah, maybe. We'll, oh, you have handlebars, so you're good to go. It has handlebars. You're fine. Right. Yeah. It's still it, I, the best way to describe it. It's still the old boys club, and that's that comes back again to the kind of antiquity ness of it. That's not a word, but we'll you just work made it. it. You just own that shit. Antiquityness <laughs> and the antiquityness of it, uh, especially the antiquityness <laughs> of it. Yeah. Uh, I also say both. Instead of both, both, both them mothers, because <laughs> I'm hella street yo, <laughs> or I'm slightly illiterate and um, <laughs> I knew what you were saying. The words aren't there's my nothing, strong suit. There's nothing wrong with that type of vernacular. Yeah. I understood what you meant, right? Uh, anyways, so so the kerfuffle, 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 kerfuffle. We're going kerfuffle. I'm going with that. Okay, we're gonna stick to it. Uh, stems from the. Uh, scrutineers. So the top three guys always get their bikes torn apart. All the way down? Every time? Yeah. Okay. And then uh, there's a little bit of a lottery on the rest of the say all the way down. That's usually all the way down to the crankshaft. Like engine out, cases split, pistons and uh, cylinders measured, uh, crank throw measured, right? So they're very, there could be all kinds of rules, but the real core of most engine rules is bore and stroke, right? That's what they want to see. They want to see because the, there's no replacement for displacement. Exactly. So the the bigger you make it, the faster you're going to go. Almost always. So they got to look at phrasing. that. They look at phrasing. There's many different are, other. Are things. we're not doing. We're not doing phrasing. What did I say? The bigger you make it, the faster you can go. Yeah, I guess well, that's well. phrasing. I guess right. All right. I guess we're not doing phrasing. The bigger the bang. I don't know. Um. So if you you can cheat all kinds of different ways, way more than just born stroke. Way more than born stroke, but that's why they would need to get down to that nitty gritty. I didn't realize how many ways there are to cheat until I started talking to race mechanics and, and engine developer guys. Oh man, if I the stories, the stories, the yeah. stories. stories we can't tell. Uh, I'd love to. They're so good. <laughs> that's what. That's what. That's going to go in the book. That's where that's going to go. The book. The book. Because you know, every every failed journalist has a book they're working on. <laughs> That they're like, oh, when I'm done here, I'm going to tell all my book. Yeah. I'm going to self-publish it, too. Right. Put it on Amazon. <laughs> Anyways. Um, so, yeah. So they, they got they, torn down. They, they, took, they took it down. They tore it down. And, and one of the scrutineers made an offhand remark to Michael Dunlop that he didn't think the, um, the piston was, was homologated. And then. And this would have been in a super stock? Or what was this? The 600 class? Or was it the no? Yeah. This was a senior TT. Mm-mm. This is this is during the senior TT press conference, but is in the super sport race because it was Ian Hutchinson's bike getting torn down, and Michael Dunlop saying, "Well, he won because on the super sport, which is what I had talked about being the good race to watch." Right. That was when Ian threw him a beaten. Right. So they. Well, you said super stock. Oh my gosh! 
I, I got confused. Well, I thought it was the thousands. No, no, no. It's the 600. Because it, it was a Yamaha piston. Okay. Got it. Um, so the deal ended up being, so one of the scrutineers mentions it to Michael Dunlop. Dunlop then goes around the paddock saying, well, you know, Hutchie had a, had a cheater piston in there. And then they do the scrutineer and they realize that the piston wasn't, was a homologated piston and all was good. And that, um, the, I'm trying to get the verbiage right that no, the scrutineers didn't find anything of suspect and there was no protest lodged by any competitors. So, so a lot of this stems from an off the, what sounds like an off the cuff comment from one of the scrutineers before he had completed his, his work and his due diligence saying something to Michael Dunlop and then Michael Dunlop running and, and telling it as, as fact. Yeah. And, you know, Hutchie got pretty, pretty shitty about it in the senior TT and um, it's 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 really well worth watching. Is it un, was it unprovoked? I didn't get a chance to watch this. Yeah, it was. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's worth watching because it's it's on YouTube. So if you go to the race results for the Senior TT on Asphalt and Rubber, or just go to the Isle of Man's YouTube channel, the press conference is on there for you to watch. It's about sixteen minutes long. It's actually pretty long. But Hutchie basically says like, "Hey, I don't know what Michael's getting on about all this stuff," and he's like calling me a cheater, and I'm not a cheater. I don't know why he's going around telling people I'm a cheater. And if that's the way things are going to be, I'm probably just not going to come race at the uh, Isle of Man TT anymore because I just don't want to be a part of it if that's the way things are going to be. And then, you know, in great, you know, proper Michael Dunlop fashion when the uh, the the press guy, the guy who's asking all the questions, um, asks him for a response. He's like, no, I'm good. I already said it all. You can say whatever. I don't care. You should. It's It's a... It's a pretty classic Michael Dunlop response of just a guy who just gives zero shits. Yeah, which made me lose a little respect for him because it's like, oh, well, if you're going to go around the paddock like that. Yeah, it, it, you know, when I watched it, I was like, you know, that's kind of a, a shitty thing from, from Dunlop. But then you like when you read the press releases from the ACU, it kind of sounds like maybe one of the scrutineers said something that he probably shouldn't have. I mean, like if, if you were at a race, a race Quentin, name a round and, you know, when the AMA, AMA scrutineers says, oh, yeah, you know, Jensen's bike isn't, doesn't look up to code to me. You know, you would probably take that as like, oh, Jensen's, there's something fishy with Jensen's bike. You know, it's like a person of authority, a person of position telling you something isn't on the up and up, even if they haven't like really dug down all the way. Like, you don't really know that. If they, it's almost one of those things, if they're telling it to you, then, then they, there's a certain responsibility that they must have. Yeah, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I, I would know better to know it until it's done, it's done. And if this guy, you know, yeah. I, I, that happens. There's, there's definitely times like that. And you have to be very careful with that. So that there really is only once there is a final verdict and it comes out of the mouth of whoever is the press officer or something like that, I would never, you just don't, why stir the shit? Right. Yeah, I think some of that though is frustration. Um, oh, for getting his ass kicked by yeah, for his, exactly. Sure. You yeah, know, sure. like Hutchie, Hutchie's on a tear. Um, you know, I think it's a great it's a great story that that he's putting together because of of the injuries that he's had to overcome to to get where he is now. But he's shining. His star's shining, and and the same time, like Michael Dunlop's star is rising. They're both they're both elevating their games at the same time, and and this could easily have been a sweep of, of solo class wins for either rider if the other one hadn't been there, you know? And it's cool to watch the back and forth. One gets along with one machine better than the other one gets along with the other machine, right? And that's the funny thing. Like, the 600s have usually been Dunlop's bread and butter. 
And it's only in the recent years that we've seen him kind of rise in the superstock. Yeah, yeah. it it happens. Sometimes you end up morphing. Your style ends up suiting one bike more than the other. Your comfort level with the speeds, I'm sure, there. Dropping 133 laps and sub-17s. I mean, that's that's impressive. To do 133 in a superstock, this is probably something we should talk about. To do 133 in a superstock, to to see superbike times on a superstock machine, I think is incredibly impressive. And one of the things that they were talking about is for some of these bikes, the super stock bike is more sophisticated with electronics sure. than it is the super bike. That's All right, well, this you know, is supposed a great conversation in general about bikes in general. And a lot of people like the horsepower of most of these open class machines, BMW S1000RR, Jixxer 1000, CBR 1000. I don't care. Like CBR 1000 probably doesn't make a lot of horsepower, right? People talk about that being an aged bike. The chassis is not the good and the horsepower isn't quite there with the others. It's still well enough to overcome the grip of a rear tire. So then it becomes a balance between electronics, keeping it in check, and a rider using the torque that he's given, he or she, um, to, to get the lap time. And in the, in the case of, of a lot of super stock bikes, they're, the power comes on in such a smooth, linear way because you don't have these really nasty cams that are higher RPM, and you don't have a builder trying to get a dyno number right that's often what happens is people are shooting for that horsepower number the final it makes x amount of horsepower at this rpm and that's all they care about what i got to see when i was at graves and this is 10 years ago and we raced superstock yamaha r1s and superstock so we had to have stock everything but blueprinted and because the superstock bikes had such stringent regulations couldn't change cams couldn't change pistons couldn't change rods couldn't change crankshafts couldn't change cylinder heads had to be very careful about what we could do to cylinder heads couldn't port couldn't polish could only do small things those bikes ended up i think becoming tricker than the super bikes because the the engines had to be so knife edge perfect right everything about them had to be perfect and if with the good crew chiefs uh, specifically at the time, it was Jeff Sesmat, who is now, I can't, I haven't talked to him in a while, but he had been in the, in charge of uh, data and crew chiefing for JD Beach. And I think he's still involved with that somehow right now. I haven't talked to him in a while. But this guy would build motors to be powerful all the time, not just at top end. So yeah, they were shooting for a number. They all wanted to see that high horsepower. And I can't remember from that era... I think a, a good running super stock engine on a, or yeah, super stock R1 engine on a dyno jet was like between 175 and 180. And that's, that's a lot for a super stock engine. But with the methyl ethyl death fuel that we would run, which was some sort of VP, MR, yada, yada, whatever, that stuff would give so much power if tuned correctly for it that you could have an overabundance of top end power and then make the bike unrideable. Or you could have really good mid-range, extremely good range, pouring torque off the bottom to where the rider didn't have to row through the gearbox or spend a lot of time or, or didn't have to worry about where, where, where they were in the RPM when they exited a corner. If they happened to be a little bit, like maybe the gear too high or gear too low, it wasn't going to uh, be too far off. And they had predictable torque. So when they did pour on the throttle, the tire, the feeling they were getting from the tire was always the same, right? So the combination of that 
engine power with the chassis setup that they would do, which was, that was a phenomenal thing for me to watch. Cause you'd watch the guys on super bikes get themselves tied up in knots, trying to make them work. And I can think of many examples of people that were on bikes like Josh Hayes used to ride a bike that was just an animal and you knew how fast it was. It was amazingly fast, but it was nearly unrideable and watching him blast around on that thing and then having the engine blow up over and over and over. It was like, oh, that poor guy. And eventually I, I've said that, I think I've even said it on our podcast before. That was what made that kid was, was when he had to suffer through that and then ended up getting on bikes that were way more rideable. He could do it, right? Were you talking about Josh Hayes or Josh Heron? Hayes. Okay. Hayes. Okay. When he was on the Attack Kawasaki's, those things were just animals. Amazingly fast, hardcore, but not not like the Yamahas he's been riding for the past however many years, right? Nearly 10 at this stage, probably eight. Smooth, power from the bottom, power all the way through, consistent. Uh, and it was a big deal. So with these super stock bikes... Really, I, so what would we? What are we talking about? The difference between 190 horsepower and 210, maybe. And at the Isle of Man, that actually would change the price of bread, right? You'd think with all these long straightaways, but I don't think so. You got so much momentum going; it's obvious. Because how? What was? What's a good lap on a 600 there? 130? No, 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 not is, that high. It isn't on a 600. No, uh, 128. Well. Not, I mean, but at the end of a 37, 38 yeah, miles, the like, fact there's only five second difference, it no, shows you how no, much no. more. It's more than that. It's like 20 seconds or whatever, but yeah. Well, what I'm saying is if it's a 130 mile an hour lap, I think, so 128 to 135. So the, from a mile an hour standpoint, okay. So you're saying it's between 16 minutes and. Well, no, I mean, so like a 133 is like 16 55 ish one 1658 something like that and i think a 128 is like 1720 or whatever okay right still pretty amazing to me that yeah. they're it's that close well it's yeah i mean the the tt course is interesting because the tt course for a lot of it is flow you know it's it's a lot of it is is just maintaining your speed and keeping yeah, momentum and keeping it going and keeping your momentum going and and hitting your apexes and lining it up and keeping making the the race course as straight as you can there's not that much stop and go so you know it's interesting it's interesting to see how you tune a bike for that and that's and that's really the the secret sauce right and that's kind of why we saw well there's a lot of reasons i think we saw bruce anstey uh struggle this year and part of it was he, he had a pretty big crash Part of it too, though, is that the RC twenty one three twenty one three VS is just not a bike that uh, has had a lot of time to get set up for the Isle of Man as far as ground clearances and suspension and dialing in the electronics and all that jazz. And and two, it's a bike that was made for track riding, not road riding. And so it's a very different machine. Where yeah, it's this latest and greatest from from Honda, but it's like a nice edge where you're going towards a very particular task and now you're using it in an application that it wasn't necessarily designed for it wants a smooth billiard smooth billiard table smooth track period that's right. what that would want that's what i mean we even see it with marquez where, where and, transitions are going to make time because like you know being able to flick a bike like definitely the handling of a bike is 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 important don't get me wrong but the 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 quick transitions that you could get from the rc versus like a cbr the advantage there 
it's kind of negated on a track like the TT where that's not really where the, the time is won or lost. So it's interesting to see. It's interesting to see the development and I'll be curious to see if they run it next year and, and how it does. But, but it wouldn't surprise me that Ian was able to go faster or as fast on a super stock engine. That's, that's the bottom line of the conversation with is that I think with so much of an abundance of power and it just doesn't matter as much, which is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's also a testament to just where we are in the state of production level bikes. You know, what's coming out of the factories is pretty potent. The fact that 200 horsepower is now the, the new threshold for any super bike coming from a major motorcycle manufacturer is, I think, of note. Uh, you're making 200 horsepower per liter. It's yeah. gnarly. Super gnarly. But um, switching gears... Once the TT got done, I actually had to take a little trip down to Los Angeles, my least favorite place in the world. <laughs> really? Is that bad? It's not that bad. I don't like LA. That that trip was that bad. I will tell you that. Uh-huh. That trip was gnarly. I think I was in traffic for just 20 hours straight. Literally. Like, I'm not even like the line at the, the TSA line at the airport at PDX at five in the morning was like out the door. Our plane had to sit in line to take off. Our plane had to sit in line when it landed yeah. to get it. Just everywhere was line to get the rental car, line to get on the freeway, line to get in town, line to park. So all the reasons I don't live there. But um, better but, in Cleveland though, right? I'm trying to think. I don't think I've ever actually been to Cleveland. Hmm. Have you ever watched the movie Howard the Duck? No. You should do that. Okay, I will be sure to write that down. Okay, and listen to the Black Keys. Oh, they're from Akron, but whatever. Same thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, so bad times in LA, so but good times but, because but good you time. got to... I got to, I got to... I got to do some motorbiking stuff, so that was cool. So Yamaha was showing us its 2017 models uh, for the US that are coming out now, basically. Uh, one of them is the Bolt. It's, it's the Yamaha Bolt Cruiser. They're calling it the. I, I have a hard time even keeping a straight face when you talk about it. <laughs> it's revolting. <laughs> I think you're. I they're, think they're revolting it. <laughs> tell me, tell me when you're done. Just get uh, it all out. Uh, just tell so, me when you're. It's so horrible. Tell me when you're gonna and, go. And the fact that it kind of echoes that. What is it called? The SCR or S? Yeah, it's the SCR 950. So think it's a scrambler type bike. Yeah. So I should say it's the Yamaha bolt cruiser turned into a scrambler styled bike but it's i'm gonna be a little shitty about it to be honest because i really just think that's just someone sat in the boardroom was like guys when you have a scrambler scrambler's really popular right now we need scrambler 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 what can we do how can we build a scrambler uh let's just take a bolt and put some stuff on it and call it good I mean, it's a it's a belt driven bike you know how many scramblers have you seen with a belt drive not that that really is going to change the price of bread but it literally just looks like a cruiser that they bolted a slightly higher pipe on put a slightly flatter seat on they bolted it they did a little windscreen dealy and it just kind of like it, it literally it literally it looks like those cartoons where you see like the wolf like in sheep's clothing where like it just <laughs> looks like a moron just walking around like that's what it looks like it just looks like someone dressed it up that day <laughs> you know it's like the kid going to like the halloween parade at school and he's just got like it's like dad's clothes on him and he's like oh, i'm an adult and you're like no you're not you're kidding silly clothes yeah the wolf in sheep's clothing implies that it actually has some teeth yeah, yeah, it which does it obviously doesn't. I don't get it. I don't. There's some people there that were like losing their minds over like, oh, it's really cool. I'm glad you guys built that bike. And I just that sat would be there. the same person that would say, mm, post heritage. I love it. Right. I I don't know though. Like I feel like 
I feel like the post authentic crowd is going to see right through it. <laughs> post authentic. But um but it's just I don't know. So it, it's just not my jam. Let's just leave it at that. It's not my jam. What is growing to be my jam is the FZ10, which was the other bike we got to see. And we talked about this during the Intermont no. Eichma Eichma, yeah, and that I I like it, and it's weird robotic it's transformer super way. Weird looking. It's it's one of the color schemes is like this gray and neon. I like it, and it's just bizarre balls out there. But like the more I think about it, I'm like, that's kind of how your how you want your Street Fighter, right? You want yeah. your Street Fighter just loud and proud and weird. Just keep keep Street Fighters weird. Well, so what? It's replacing the FC one. Right? Or are they well, going to continue on with the FC1? It sounds like the FC1 is going to stick around a little longer huh. because you think about the demographics for those bikes. And like the FC1 is like a proper old man bike. That is a gray hair one for sure. Right? Now. And, and the FC1 owners love the shit out of them. And all they want is, is their FC1 now with the newest engine in it. And that is kind of what the FC10 is. The FC10 is the current generation R1 engine retuned. With the cross-plane crank. Cross-plane crank. Sounds cool. Super cool. Super great chassis. Super great engine. Uh, retuned to make more mid-range torque, lower down the rev range. Peak horsepower is about 160. At least that's in Europe. I don't know how watered down it's going to be for the EPA and noise and all that. That's a whole different podcast. So it'll be interesting to see. But it, it's, you know, that's... They made it. They made it into a good Street Fighter form, and I and I dig it. Um, but I don't think, yeah, the 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 gray hair FC one owners are gonna be too keen for this Johnny Five looking number five. Stay alive. Yeah, it kind of has that look. <sighs> yeah, to it. you know, especially in the eyes and the yeah, face. No, it, it looks like a the new gen, like a transformer from the movie Transformers. Oh yeah, Michael right? Bay Transformer. Yeah, which yeah. I I don't really like that much, but I don't mind this. And you know what? I'd ride the crap out of it. Absolutely, that's a bike. Well, when I see it, I want to ride it. And that's what go. that's what the thing where I'm at now. I'm like, yeah, I want to get on that thing. That looks like a bike for the ripping and the tearing. Yeah, absolutely. And it looks weird, and I'm starting to become really cool with that. And it's priced pretty well. Is it? What's the price? Um, it is. 13 grand on the nose i think and when shall it be available later this month really so that soon yeah it's gonna be in dealerships super soon right on so by the time probably probably like it'll probably be have been in dealerships for about three or four months but by the time we get this podcast out (laughs) so uh how so in this situation yamaha's like all right we've got some new models we're gonna get the press down here to check it out what why at this stage why wouldn't you release that during uh Eichma or well so yeah it came out i mean obviously the 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 bolt scrambler thing the scr 950 wasn't something that came out at Eichma. and yeah, it's a, because and it's, it's, a, a, it's a last ditch desperate attempt at getting out of scrambler on it, time yeah i mean if you read in between the lines it is kind of how it reads right it's <laughs> it's 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 yamaha north america's answer to what they're seeing in the scrambler what they saw at Eichma. i mean it's a it is what it is. It, it's exactly what it is what it is. It's 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 just like a hey, let's bolt parts on and make a scrambler because that's what you can do right now. Yeah. Because obviously it takes you know, it takes years to develop a new motorcycle. You want to make a proper scrambler model, it's going to take you three to five years from ink to you know dealership. Um. So that's obviously not an option to them because pff, three to five years, I don't even think we're going to have a scrambler demographic anymore. <laughs> um. But, you know, but they can build a model now based off an existing model using kind of bolt-on parts. That's a very uh, um, achievable yeah, thing to do. Sure. And so I get that. I don't want to be too shitty about it because I get that. And that's, you know, you got to work within the constraints that you have. Sure. But is it a bike that, like, I'm going to go off-road with? No. Nah. It, you know, like, I mean, 
you can go as off road with it as you can with a Panagoliath. Yeah, TKCAs, sure, sure, sure. But does know? it inspire you to? No. Nah. Right. There's certain bikes like the FZ, sorry, it's FZ10, yeah? FZ10 for FZ10. the US market, MT10 for every other market. Yeah, whatever. So FZ10, that makes me want to ride it, makes me want to go to track day, makes me want to go to Eastern Oregon, makes me want to ride, period. It makes me want to save up money for the tickets I'm going to get on it. Well, that's too. Whereas the Scrambler just makes me want to go to the bathroom and take a healthy dump. That's wow. about all that. You got real shitty with that, literally. <laughs> I don't want to say you got a little douchey, but that's like too no, far. It's a little right? too far. Yeah. That's a different podcast. <laughs> but for for eight, eight, seven, eight, is six, that what they're going to eight, six, ninety nine for the scrambler? Wow. So it's a little. That's that's like Ducati scrambler price. Right. And that's and that's where I kind of think they missed like, the mark. You're I'm just done. Like, you go, if you get somebody, anybody that can rub a couple brain cells together and ride a, a Ducati. Seriously, I know. I'm a Ducati guy. Get it. But seriously, you're going to that thing and then put it up again. Like or, I would understand it if it was 6,000. Okay. And that's the thing. When I was talking to, I was talking to a sales guy today about it actually. And he asked me the price and I was like, eh. and he's like, Oh, you missed the mark. Yeah. If that thing was six grand, put me out of business. Sure. There'd be some belt drive people not even giving a shit riding around on those things. It'd be great. Belt drive. Oh, if I break it, I can just put my belt, my belt around my waist around it. <laughs> no, no issue. Uh, I got a Calvin Klein belt. Does it? Does it? Does it? Does it use Calvin Klein? What I got? I got Massimo. What do we got? Um, so you know, it is what it is. I'm sure they'll sell some. I'm sure it's not costing them a lot yeah, in terms sure. of development and production. Right. So maybe they'll make a buck on it. Maybe they'll test the market. I don't. It's just sad to see such derivative crap it was, come out. It was not the. I'm glad they showed us that bike first because if that's how we had ended the the presentation, wah, I probably wah, wah. I probably would have been upset that I woke up at 4 a.m. for that nonsense. Sure. All right, so you went from there to what? I went from there straight to the Energica Eva Los Angeles press launch. So that is an electric bike, electric street fighter. This is really a tale of two street fighters. Um, Energica is an Italian company that comes from CRP Racing, who is another Italian company that's in the Modena F1 alley. They Motor alley. They call motor it alley. the Motor Valley is where Bologna... Ferrari, so it, Ducati and Bologna, Ferrari and uh, Modena, and Maserati and Lamborghini, the, and, right. and all of the stuff that f- is all mechanical. And they do there. they do a lot of engineering and a lot of work for Formula for One. Formula teams. One, very and, technically advanced engineering firm for automotive applications, and they've spun out this electric motorcycle company. It's its own little entity, but it's very much a part of. It started out at CRP, and uh, I rode the Energica. Ego, which is like their sport bike, super bike version of the of the machine. And I rode that up in San Francisco and it's a very impressive machine. It's not very attractive. It's, I rode it here in well, Portland. That's right. That's right. Uh, so I'm lucky to have gotten so the we, chance we to ride. So we can trade notes on that. Absolutely. You tell me, how did you feel about the first, the Ego, which is the fared, fully fared, hideously ugly, but fully fared. 650 pound maybe no it's not that much it's like 580 okay so nearly 600 pound that's that's so everybody knows if you haven't listened to any us talk about electric bikes uh, at all there it takes quite a bit of of weight to get the energy density in one of these vehicles to get anywhere at at any speed right yeah so so i mean it's definitely a heavy bike it's from a from an electric bike perspective so I don't know how far of a rabbit hole we're going to go down to. It's a very 
it, it is it is the most competent high voltage electric motorcycle on the market that you can buy period I, i've ridden them all that's the one it looks like an owl it's got the face of an owl it does and i've never even thought about it but you're right you're right anyways it, it's a very competent electrical system it's a very competent drive system it's it's really well executed on a lot of engineering dynamics they really miss the boat on the styling of it i think they've put the cart before the horse in a lot of ways when it comes to selling it they're trying to enter it's thirty five thousand dollars thirty five let's, let's boil that down that's you the know biggest what? problem to right? be fair to be fair like that price point is about on par that's, i know it is that's cheaper than what you're going to get from some of the other brands that are that are swimming around in the space it's cheaper than what the mission uh r was ever going to be so for what it is it's priced pretty well the problem is is like i could get a panigale and like a couple other bikes or this and it's like that's tough and i can only go i would say probably what 80 miles 100 ish yeah it depends how you ride i'm saying if i'm hauling butt i'm only gonna get probably 80 miles and that's just not enough it's tough it's tough and that's and that's and then the weight you have all the weight to get you that 80 miles and it's a heavy bike but it feels good and it feels very it's hard to explain how awesome it is to ride these electric bikes that are competent because they are really interesting and that's the thing the high voltage electric bikes i think will convert people like we're still seeing zero and i guess now it's victory playing around with lower voltage systems and they're just kind of meh you get into the higher voltage systems 300 plus volts for the motors and the controllers and and the packs and that's when the performance is really eye-catching and really a joy to ride and when i rode the ego up in san francisco it was on a smooth flowing fun twisty road where the weight transfer wasn't as big of an issue Mm -hmm. because it's a good handling bike it's got a good chassis but physics is physics is physics you can't get around the fact that you're moving a 580 pound lump around rotating mass or not yeah. You know, so there's there's less rotational mass, which makes transitions actually not too bad from left to right. But like we saw, and this is where it comes where things got kind of shitty with the Eva, we took it through downtown was it Santa Monica? And then we went into uh, Malibu and then we went up into the Malibu Hills. And when we got into the hills, the route that Energica picked was this just super technical, super tight, just torn to shit road. La- it must have been Latigo. I, I, you know, I don't know. I'd have to look at a map. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, I wasn't really familiar There's with the area. There's a couple of those that are up there. They're just, over the years, they haven't dealt it's with just, very well. It's just your classic California road that needed to be repaved 10 years ago kind of thing. And it was the absolute worst road to take that bike on with journalists. Because it's it's not really like, hey, I'm moving the bike, you know, side to side transition, you know, railing through the turns. It's more like, hey, I'm having to like get really hard on the brakes to make this hairpin decreasing radius turn that's got gravel everywhere. And now I have to like tiptoe this 500 plus pound bike through it. It's just highlighting all the weaknesses of the bike and not the strengths. Whereas when we rode it in San Francisco, it was very much the other way around of, hey, isn't this fun? You don't have the rotational mass and really kind of moves through the turns. You don't really have to get on the binders too hard. So you don't realize the fact that you have to stop 550 plus pounds because that's just but like, man, we were doing it in L.A. And that kind of sucked. It's a good bike. It's very it's very competent. The UI UX is pretty well thought out. Not great. You're going to have to. I don't even remember what that is. User user interface, user experience. Okay. So that would be like the controls, what the dash looks like, how intuitive it was to move things like. 
pretty clever way of doing things. Like it's from an engineering point of view, a lot of really smart things, but it's just tough. Like I, I like that bike as an electric bike. I like it, but like, is, am I going to go buy one? No. And, and it's still kind of, it's still one of those, like that, again, like it looks like an owl. Like it just, for me, I wish they had reevaluated the way that bikes look because I think if that bike had the same design and sex appeal that like the mission had, yeah, people would be like, oh yeah, sign me up for it. Yeah, sure. But it's this very polarizing look and it's not necessarily ugly, but you're either into it or you're not. And it grows on, it grew on me over time and I can kind of get into it, but I'm not excited about it. I don't look at it and be like, oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh that's hot. I need to have, I need that bike. It's 35 grand. How many children do you, can I, can I give you like a kidney as a down payment? Let's make this happen. Who do I got to kill? I will literally, I will literally chop up a hooker's body for you <laughs> if I can get this bike. Instead, you got a bike that looks like it knows how to get yeah. down to the bottom of a Tootsie Pop. Yeah. Right? And it was, and it was a weird press launch too. It was like out of a Volkswagen dealership. Because they had a fast charging system. And, and that is one of the upsides of the Energica is it has a fast DC charger. So you can recharge that battery. If you have the infrastructure for it, you can recharge that battery in like 20 minutes, which is a game changer. But yes. it, you have to have Only a very, if you have the You have to have that special DC charger. And there's not a lot of those out there. And that's kind of the tough equation. And like get one installed in your house is like 10, 20 grand. <laughs> you get some money back from the government when you do it. But it's just tough. So they definitely have an uphill battle with, it was a really brief launch. Um, I got to ride with my good friend, Basm Wazif. So Basm's a good dude. We had fun. We had probably too much fun because, you know, we kind of got into some tomfoolery and then we ended up taking longer than we were supposed to. And then that kind of screwed things up for another batch of journalists that were coming in afterwards that we didn't know about. And it's a whole thing, but. You feel so. bad about that? I did a little bit. Did you I don't like I don't like being a dick. I did apologize. I don't want to be the dick of of like the journalistic crowd, but you know, it was it was the whole thing was very weird. Yeah. I don't want to be shitty about it, but it was just a weird press launch. It was on like <laughs> I just remember like when I got there and just kind of like this is the weirdest press launch I've ever been to. Well, it's a small company, you know. Full it disclosure: is. one of my best friends that I've known now for almost twenty years in the industry was the technical rep for them for a very long time. Uh, you remember Eric yeah, yeah. Nicolulis. Yeah. So I know a lot of the, the in the background with this company. It's fascinating, but it's not that heartening because I know what he was up against when he was working with them, how difficult it was to deal with it because it's an Italian company. It's very that Italian. It's trying to showcase its ability to do stuff in general with things that it doesn't that it can because all of the all of the intellectual property that it deals with in formula one and anything else it has to keep quiet well that's the other side of it so like so like they really like highlight the fact that like a lot of these parts are rapid prototype and crp does rapid prototyping like there is there is a marketing exercise that's going on like you said for for some of the projects they can't talk about that are in this bike it's kind of like a halo product it for is. their other stuff it is so like i get it from that perspective and they're good people you know everyone i talk to there is super switched on super into it and you know i wish them the best of luck but like you know, not to, to, to play into a stereotype, but it is a very Italian company and they do things in a very Italian way, which as, as an American businessman, as an American journalist seem very unnatural and very much the wrong way to do. Um, that's just my opinion. Yeah. You know, um, unfortunately that's the opinion that's rooted in the American market. And if you want to work in the American market, it's probably the opinion you want to take on. Sure. But it's, it's one of those things I'd be very, 
you get that price down to like 20 grand. Yeah. I think I think they start moving a lot more bikes. You would get to the Even Tesla. Way, that would be the Tesla breakpoint where people are buying Teslas. And they a want, lot of Teslas, right? Right. And they want to be the Tesla of electric motorcycles. And and they, they definitely, like on a hardware perspective, are, are right there. It's just they just don't have the design. They don't quite have the marketing. They don't, they're just not putting, they're not putting the energy into it. And I think a lot of that just comes down to funding. They probably just don't have the money sure. to do things at the level that they want to or need to. And that's, they're having to get scrappy with it. And unfortunately it shows that they're trying, they're having to get scrappy with it and they're having to think, you know, asymmetrical on how they're attacking things. And it's just sometimes at the end of the day, that's not good, True. but definitely an interesting bike. Definitely one I'm glad I got to ride. Um, very curious to see where the company goes goes forward. I think they've sold about a dozen bikes already, and probably sell a few more. Um, and then hopefully that'll allow them to get enough traction and enough funding to to make a model that is more for the masses. That's probably the most polite way to say it. Yep. So those are the bikes I've been getting to ride and getting to see. Quinn, what do you what have you been up to? I've been riding a lot of dirt bikes uh, over the past, I'd say, month or so. Are you are you working on credits for your PhD in Brapology? In Brapology. Yes, I will. I'm going to have to figure out. There's probably more BRAP classes. Ro- Roosting 101. <laughs> yeah. Stoppies 123. <laughs> yeah, it's mo- <laughs> it's mostly trail riding and trying not to crash 101. So that's been good just because this is the time of year right before the summer gets dusty. There's a bunch of different riding areas that are um, they're fun before it gets dusty, right? So on the, on the dry side of the Cascades. Uh, did a track day or participated briefly in a track day. It's the first time I'd been on a road race track. I can't even remember. I think it's been a year, which is very embarrassing because I, the, the, the past year, oh, that's not true. You and I, the last time I was on a track would have been back in July of last year. That's a lot, right? When we were at the, uh, Arai event, I think that might've been the last time I was oh, on. Oh, do you, do you ride at that? Yeah. With my Multistrada. And oh, yeah. on an 899, I, don't think I, I snuck that. out. It was a it was a Ducati slasher. It was mostly an Arai event, and I was there dealing with the Ducatis. Ducati had provided the the fleet of bikes that yeah. we rode. And, yeah, and um and uh, I appropriated a couple of bikes during the time and rode my own, which was awesome. So anyway, it's been a while. For whatever reason, my the bikes that I have for track are in various states of disrepair. Right. So uh, one of our uh, uh, Christian is one of the salespeople at Motocorsa. Uh, we had a friend pass away last year, uh, unfortunately, um, and he left a motor, one of his motorcycles, and Christian uh, has it. And it's a 900 SS. It's a sweet bike. And it's it's an older one, so this is a 94, five six. I can't remember what year. Um, and it's been built. So I was this, gonna say this is not a this stock. This has every single possible thing you can do for a period 900. This side of like magnesium wheels. I think it has stock wheels, and that's about the only thing that's stock on it, right? Uh, so, so this you got to understand. Most people don't even really pay much attention to these older Ducatis. It's just an older slab-sided Ducati. This one's a half fairing, so it's not quite slab-sided. But the 900 SSers for most people are just meh. Those of us in the Ducati world love them. They're great, um, but they're old school. They're slow handling, um, long. And not that powerful, right? But a built one, and this is why I'm bringing it up, was absolutely superb. And it was almost, uh, you can't call it life-changing, but it was definitely... Was it sublime? Mindset-changing. Yeah, it was was sublime, for sure. So I get out on it, and part of it was a little bit of a... uh, I'm riding, just kind of evoking the 
the memories of the friend, right? It was kind of a, a closure. It's, it's, eh, I'm not that. Spirit- There's a little catharsis going yeah, on. Yeah. Okay. There. So I'll just say catharsis. The little bit of that. Yeah. Um, so a little, a lot of it though was I just wanted to get on track and I wanted to do it on a bike that I, I wasn't going to push because it's, it's a bitching bike. Looks good. I did not expect it to be as, as, amazing as it was so i get out on it and ease in first time i've been on track a long time cold tires tracks i mean it was overcast so the track's cool and i just eased in and kept going easing in and easing in and kept going and going and it just was so naturally fast and this is a maybe 90 horsepower engine this is a mid 90s 900 ss with cams and ported heads and knife edge crank and a bunch of awesome stuff but still not that fast but holy crap, was the power just—it's uh, sublime. You're like you're absolutely sublime. The the torque was perfect. The the sound that comes out of these engines from that era, specifically when they have a two into two exhaust, is so much better than the crap that we have nowadays that forces it all into one. Most Ducatis have these exhaust systems that stuff it all into one one pipe one exit at least even if a street fighter looks like two exits it's like two into one back into two two into one and two into yeah and it it makes it sounds okay but it it it's not as pure as the ones like an 888 even a 916 that two going into two out the back right so the sound is great the chassis was amazing the the brakes, everything about it, and I just had a really, really good time. It was a, it was an amazing experience, and to think that you can do that on a bike that I don't know probably is worth five grand. I mean, this one's of course priceless to us. Yeah. But really, if you tried to, you if you you could build the thing probably for five six grand. You could find some old nine hundred SS somewhere and get the heads done, get the crank done, do the engine. <clears throat> it might not be that cheap, but. Good time, and it made me wish that they still made bigger, powerful, air-cooled two-valve Ducatis, because that's one thing that they've had to get away from for EPA and noise, noise and tailpipe emissions reasons over the years. It's very difficult to get a air-cooled engine to to meet the the the, the Euro four regs and the car. Now it's now it's Euro four is really the the death of of air-cooled bikes. We're yeah. seeing but, fewer but, and fewer and fewer. The the scrambler they obviously do something. I mean, but it it's fairly well neutered. It's got a single throttle body. You know, it's it's not it's not made to be powerful. It's still plenty powerful, but it's not made to be like that. So for me to it was very exciting to get back onto a just a very pure. Even if it didn't have carburetors, right? Oh no, this one does. That's right. Holy crap. Oh, that makes it even. <laughs> it's so funny to think about for me is that these distilled back to basics bikes are more, they're just a lot of fun. That that reminds me. I wrote a buddy of mine's uh, DRZ, and and it, it reminded me like oh, I forgot I haven't ridden a carbureted bike in man fifteen years. Yeah, that long maybe. What would it have been? Your CBR? It was, my, it was my CBR, right? You know, and I, I'm trying to think. I don't think. I mean, I've probably hopped on a buddy's bike or something that was carbureted and like a dirt bike or something, but yeah, like sure. one that I like really gave a proper romp around on and it, and it, remi- it reminded me, it just was like, yeah, when, when it's, when it's jetted right and those things work good and I can kind of get that Luddite argument of like, I don't want my fuel injection and ABS and traction control and all that jazz. And you're like, yeah, when it's right, it's right, it's right. And um, at the end of the day, it really is kind of like that connection back to the rider. If it makes you 
feel and connected with the road and the machine and you know it's firing on all the cylinders not to use like a totally uh appropriate pun um or idiom cliche cliche it's all those all things. It's, all, it's really all of the above yeah it, it's just good it's just good also being on a bike that has 90 horsepower ish uh and a and an ancient trellis chassis with brake calipers that are axially axially mounted instead of radially and right there's a lot of old tech on the bike yeah and be able to um rip and tear around a track and and like i went out in b group and just <laughs> you were that guy yeah i did i was because ah. i you know i was just like i'm just ease in i don't know i want to be out there and, and get into people's way but then certainly not long after that i was just ripping and tearing and I'm it was, really, that, there was some <laughs> there was some amount of fun being on slow or what what could be called slow bikes yeah. on a on a fast track because I, I exited turn nine which is the turn onto the front straight right behind somebody and they took off and it was gone and i had caught up to them on the back yeah. section and they were gone i'm like oh wow that, that bike's fast maybe Str- maybe they found guy. their stride and then by the t- time turn one came in I sucked this poor bastard up so bad and just pa- on the outside passed him in turn one, wasn't expecting it, and it was an S1000RR. And I'm like, oh, of course. Of course that's what it was, right? <laughs> Super freaking fast, slow as Christmas in the corners. And, and But that was it was a very... Uh, you, you, know. you, you too were, were that guy one day long, long ago. I know, absolutely, yeah. and I get it. <laughs> I was too, for sure. Um, I probably still am. I, I'm kind of bummed I missed that day. I was I was just finishing my TT come down and uh needed the sleep and needed the day off to be honest the tt fortnight was definitely taxing but i wish i had known you were going to go out especially in b group i would have come out on my hyper and just yeah around with you. sure i just don't you know i don't like borrowing other people's bikes this was a special circumstance i yeah. wish i could do it every time sure i just can't and i've got to just focus on uh trying to find a uh the tool to remove the k-tech fork caps on my 848s forks so that i can get that thing running. So I'm going to, I'm going to try and focus on that this week and see if I can find some of the pieces and parts to get that bike. Going. That reminds me, I have to do the same thing for my track bike uh, later tonight. I oh, guess yeah? I'm going to, cause I got the room in the garage right now. I can uh, put it up on the lift and do give it. it, give it some love, get that it done. You're talking poor, about the R1. The R1. Yeah. Nice. That poor thing. She's so, I, don't, I think it's got, I think it's got like 30,000 miles and probably like 20,000 of them are, on the track or something stupid like that. Um, just get it going. And, and all I've ever done to it is like change the oil each season and one valve job. So it's definitely time for some love, some, some well-earned love, flush the radiator, do all the maintenance stuff. I probably should have done and haven't, but this would be after you get the podcast. Uh, well, yeah, 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 obviously, of course. obviously I'm going to just gonna be like within hours going to turn this one around. I promise this time. Totally. Sure. To, totes my guts. So that bike, it doesn't have a kickstand, does it? Uh, it does not have a kickstand. No? It has only center Zero. Center. The Because uh, it's got the race shark skins on it, and there's no clearance for the kickstand, so you have to take the kickstand off. All right. So kickstand's off. Rear stand's up. Rear stand's down. That, yeah. Right? Rear well, stand's rear, down. Rear stand's up to go to go ride. Like the kickstand up. Rear stand up. Okay. Think about it. Yeah. That's the thinker. You're right. Kick stands up. Rear stands up. Rear stands up. Rear stands up. Good talk. See you out there. Later.
Did you notice the, uh, oh yeah, you did. You posted it. I was very proud of you for posting that. That came to me and I don't know how it came to me that it's a brap. It's a brap. Oh, did you make that? Yeah. Oh, okay. I that thought, was, I thought that for was sure. mine. I made it. I was so proud of myself. I'm like, I did an internet search first. I did the, it's a brap. It's a brap Agnel Akbar. I did Akmar brap. I, I, I tried it all. I was like, I want to know if I'm going to be the, the initial it's a brap. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I think I, 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 I had to make it. So. That's I, I thought for sure that would already be out there. No. It didn't even occur to me that you would have made it. That's right. That's funny. Mm-hmm. That's funny. It's a brap. <laughs> we, what I'm Silly waiting fish. for is to use it, you know, at, after, you know, like a proper meme usage is somebody posts something and you post the meme of, that's a brap. That's a brap. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Mm, I'm so stoked by it. You right? Silly son of a bitch. <laughs> Oh, geez. All right, you ready? Mm-hmm. Hello, I'm Jensen Beeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson.